This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. Walter Marshall lived from 1628 to 1680. He was too young to attend the Westminster Assembly, but he was an influential English Reformed writer who wrote one of the more important books in the English language on the doctrine of sanctification. He taught and studied at Oxford University, and he was among those Reformed pastors who were ejected from their pulpits on St. Bartholomew's Day on August 24, 1662, when Parliament required English ministers to conform to the Church of England and to follow the Book of Common Prayer. He wrote his book after coming face-to-face with moralism in the person of Richard Baxter, who taught that acceptance with God is not free, but conditioned upon our obedience and sanctification. This led him, naturally, to a period of spiritual depression, as it did Martin Luther before him. Like Luther and Edward Fisher, author of The Marrow of Modern Divinity in 1645, Marshall rediscovered the gospel of free grace, and with it, the true source of sanctification, that is, dying to self and being made alive to Christ. The full original title of the work is illuminating. The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification Opened in Sundry Practical Directions, suited especially to the case of those who labor under the guilt and power of indwelling sin, to which is added a sermon on justification. Here to help us get to know this important text on the Christian life is Dr. Dennis Johnson. He's professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. His most recent book is Philippians in the Reformed Expository Commentary Series. That and other faculty titles is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. So we're talking about Walter Marshall and this justly famous book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And in the introduction, I went through the whole title of it, which is an interesting title, so I won't go back through that again. But it moves from gospel mystery to the practical directions suited especially to the case of those who labor under the guilt and power of indwelling sin, which is a compelling title, really. All Christians should be attracted to a title like that because there aren't very many of us who aren't struggling with that sort of thing. So get us oriented to this thing. Well, Walter Marshall himself had struggled with this very sense of guilt as a minister of the gospel who had been called to preach, struggled with a sense of powerlessness in the face of temptation, struggled with a sense of God's being displeased with him, and just wrestled with how could he acquire both a really deep and hearty desire for holiness, and how could he lay hold on the power of the Holy Spirit to enable him to begin to act on that desire in a way that would actually enable him to offer obedience that is pleasing to God, that's honoring to God. He wrestled strongly with that. And as he did, 
he turned to a couple of different sources. And I'm, in a sense, most interested in his first dialogue partner as he wrestled with what to do and where to go and how could he confront this. And he turned to Richard Baxter, who a lot of writers, or at least we're given to think sometimes from the publication, for example, of the book, The Reformed Pastor, and the fact that he is commonly classed among, quote, the Puritans, close quote, as if they all taught the same thing and they were all agreed. You know, And so there are problems with that designation Puritan, especially when it includes John Owen, Richard Baxter, and Walter Marshall, and Edward Fisher. I mean, there's obviously a lot of diversity there. What happened as he came into contact with Baxter? What was his reaction to what he learned and heard and read from Baxter? Well, he seemed to be more and more troubled by his sense from Baxter that God's view of him, God's approach to him, was really contingent on his conscientious obedience and his sense of being unable to do that, really a sense of a lack of assurance in his justification, grounded in the fact that he saw so little fruit in his sanctification. That seems to have been the basic result of his interaction with Baxter's works. And he's not the only one who understood Baxter to be teaching that sort of thing. John Owen wrote an entire volume, volume five of Owen's works, if the listener is interested, is really an extended refutation of in response to Baxter's doctrine of justification on the basis of grace and faith and sanctification or cooperation with grace. And so even though Baxter frequently gets listed among Reformed divines, in his own time he was not necessarily accepted as a faithful representative of the Protestant evangelical faith, the Reformed faith. You can see a reaction to neonomianism as well in a work like The Marrow of Modern Divinity by Edward Fisher in 1645. And so there, there was a division of opinion and gnomism of Richard Baxter, in by grace and stay in by cooperation with grace, didn't result in sanctification, and it didn't result in assurance. Exactly. By undermining assurance, it also cut the nerve and destroyed a God-centered motive for pursuing sanctification. We're talking about, obviously, the discussion within the English-speaking world, but I think of the Belgic Confession also across the English Channel in the Low Countries and the emphasis in the Belgic Confession that it's only as we are really assured of God's justifying verdict toward us through living faith that we begin to obey for God's sake, out of love for God, rather than out of a kind of a self-love. So again, undermining assurance undermines the true and godly motive for pursuing sanctification, as well as undermining the hope, really, that we can make progress in sanctification. And the goal is sanctification. So we don't want to give people the impression that we're not interested, that we're only interested in dwelling on the gospel. We want to get these things right in order that we might grow in godliness and piety and holiness. This book comes to us, you know, you and I both teach here at Westminster Seminary, and so we are, to one degree or another, the children of the first-generation faculty. And one way this book comes to us is through Mr. Murray, who gave it a very strong endorsement. How exactly did you come into contact with this? Because you've been doing some teaching recently on this book or from this book. Well, I have been. I actually came into contact with it, interestingly, through recommendations through one of my professors, C. Jack Miller, 
who was teaching at Westminster when I was there. And he was the one who conveyed Professor Murray's high recommendation of Marshall's The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification as one of the crucial, vital books on sanctification. I ran across it at a time when I was probably not in the depths of despair that Marshall went through after he had read Baxter, but I was worn out, and I I was uh, spiritually dehydrated. I sometimes talk about it, and I heard it referred to in some recordings by Dr. Miller. I went and found a copy of it and began to read it in the old Puritan language, which was rather challenging. More recently, it's been updated in language, so there are a couple of versions available to us, but I just found it so refreshing to be shown how the joy and the hope and the desire for sanctification out of love for God really can flow out of, should flow out of, a real deep sense of assurance that God is pleased with us for the sake of Jesus' blood and righteousness imputed to us by faith alone. That wonderful biblical truth of justification by grace alone through faith alone is really the fountain from which then our loving pursuit of holiness can proceed. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. If you don't get that right, in other words, if you start with the goal, you're never going to get to the goal. And sometimes I get the feeling that people want to say that, well, you know, we all know what the gospel is, so let's move on. And that really isn't ever true, is it, that we can move on or that we can say, well, we all know what the gospel is, because it seems to me, at least from a historical point of view, every time we've said, well, we know what it is, let's go on, just about that time we really don't know what it is anymore. I think that's true, not only historically, but I think that's true probably for each believer in our own life, our own walk of faith, that we, if we sort of say, well, we'll assume the gospel, but move on now to our responsibility, we tend to be forgetful. I'm struck, since I'm not primarily a church historian, but I've studied a lot of New Testament, I'm struck by how often the Apostle Paul, in giving his ethical instructions to the churches toward the ends of his letters, take them back again to the gospel that he preached to them, and often the gospel that he rehearsed to congregations of believers earlier in the letter, and just brings them back to that touchstone of what it means to be united to Christ in his once-for-all obedience, death, resurrection, and how that's going to be spilling out as the Holy Spirit applies it in our lives, in our struggles with temptation. And Marshall does a very good job, doesn't he, of keeping together both the gospel and the pressing need for sanctification. So it's not like he only fixes on the one and ignores the other. He does a fine job of keeping them together. And before I forget, I'm glad you mentioned the existence of different volumes. I know there's a reprint of the original edition through Reformation Heritage Books, and there's a modern language version that I know that you have and you've used and we have in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. And there is an online version of the original text also that's free at monergism.com. That actually is the version I have here on my iPad as we're talking. There's lots of ways of accessing this text in electronically and in print. Well, we've sort of oriented the listener and we've talked a little bit about how we've encountered the text. Let's sort of walk through it a little bit. So maybe stimulate the listener to get a copy of this and to read it for himself. According to Marshall, what is the first thing that the Christian has to learn in order to make progress towards sanctification? I think Marshall says that well in what he calls his direction two. We might say chapter two or principle number two. And he says, if I'm reading here from the modern language version or the more updated version that's available from Whip and Stock and available in the bookstore, you want to do the ding? (laughs) 
He says you need to have certain qualifications to keep the law of God, and there are four qualifications for living a godly life which you must receive from God. First, your heart has to be freely willing to live a godly life. You need to want to do that out of a freeness, out of a, not a, just a sense of duty, but out of a true desire. And then the other three that flow from that really, no, let me say it the other way around, the other three lay the foundation for that free willingness. You need to be assured that you are forgiven and reconciled to God. That's the second. And then you need to be sure of a happy eternal future with the Lord. That's the third, but it contributes to the first as well. And you need to have sufficient strength or power both to will and to do what God calls you to do. A lot of the book flows from that, and particularly from that point of assurance of God's forgiveness and favor being absolutely essential and foundational to our motivation, our willingness, our desire to pursue holiness. It has been said to me that the old Reformed teaching of guilt, grace, and gratitude which is the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, and some have argued anyway, it's the structure of the Epistle to the Romans, and it's the structure of a lot of Reformed teaching. Some have argued that, well, that makes sanctification and Christian maturity a second blessing because it leaves it as a consequence, and it's not really built in to our salvation. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, I would say what Marshall says, and that is those of us who are truly trusting in Christ, or trusting in Christ as a complete Savior. Marshall says at one point, if you want to love the salvation that Jesus provides, I'm paraphrasing, if you love the salvation that Jesus provides, you love the whole thing, forgiveness of sins most definitely, but also increasing freedom from the dominion and the control of sin in your life. You want him to set you free from the influences of evil and from the legacy of the old humanity that we've inherited from our first father, Adam. You long to be made and transformed into the image of Christ. And justification is the indispensable beginning point of that desire. As we trust in Christ, we know the Father's favor. And because we know he's no longer our condemning judge, but now because we're in Christ, he is our loving Father who is on our side by grace. That's what we want to do. We want to pursue holiness. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. Why is it insufficient to tell people, be sanctified, obey, do this, stop doing that, you're not doing enough of this, to sort of hit people over the head and to spur them on. And it's been argued to me that the New Testament uses a range 
of motivations for sanctification. And you people who keep talking about, you know, the gospel as the principal motivation, or, or even some might say the only, you've truncated the witness of the New Testament to the various motives or motivations for sanctification, some of which include fear. And of course, there is Westminster Confession chapter 19 that does speak to that a little bit. How does Marshall deal with this, and how do you think about this? I think what Marshall would say is specifically obedience to God that is not offered out of love to God is not the sort of obedience that glorifies God or pleases God. So then the question is, how do I come to love God? And this is the first great commandment on which Jesus says, along with love for neighbor, all the commandments hang. So how do I obey out of love for God? It's not that love for God is a feeling that doesn't have the outcome in obedience, but it does have to be the motive that drives my obedience. And that means that I am called to delight in God, to long for God. And Marshall would say, the only way I'm going to come to that point is by being assured of God's love toward me, guaranteed to me in the gospel, in Christ. To be sure, the New Testament does talk to professing believers about calling us to fear, certainly drifting away from Christ. There is that reality of our ongoing tension in in this life that fear has its place. And there are different kinds of fear, right? Absolutely. And traditionally, we've distinguish between godly fear and servile fear. And I think that's what's in view in Westminster Confession 19.6, when it says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, so that's the third time it's gone back to that category, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of and humiliation for and hatred against sin together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. And it goes on to talk about the way the law functions. It does threaten us. It does show us the afflictions that we deserve in this life and what we may expect sometimes from our sin. But Scripture also promises, and it repeats again, that we're not under the law as a covenant of works. So where does the gospel as a motive then fit in this matrix of the law and gospel in the Christian life? Well, the gospel comes in as the law does its work of diagnosing for us, not just once, but as the confession there says, as an ongoing thing, diagnosing the depth of our need for both the forgiving mercy of God that's extended to us in the blood of Christ, and for Christ to be our righteousness in his obedience, and for the Spirit to keep deepening his work of transforming us into the image of Christ. The law does all that as the Spirit uses the law for those purposes. The gospel comes in and reminds us of what God has done for us in Christ. It assures us of God's favor for us as we rest and trust in him, as we seek to turn away from our sins and our self-trust and cast ourselves on his mercy, that God will not reject us, will not repudiate us. In fact, he welcomes us immediately because he welcomes us for the sake of his Son. And that's what puts to rest servile fear 
which is the fear of condemnation, of being under wrath, which is really the result of being in a covenant of works, right? Exactly, exactly. And the believer, if one is actually then a true believer, actually has true faith, is regenerated by the Spirit of God and united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, is standing before God on the basis of the finished work of Christ, received through faith alone, that person cannot possibly be under a covenant of works. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. We need to keep reminding ourselves that God looks on us with favor because of Christ, that we are not under his condemnation. And that expels that form of fear, that fear of God's condemnation, and instead replaces it with a love for the Father and love for the Son out of gratitude. As Paul says in Galatians, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or as John says in 1 John, perfect love, that is our love, which is the response of God's love, we love because he first loved us, perfect love casts out this form of fear, casts out fear. And so we want to obey God out of love, not out of fear, out of a response of thankfulness, not seeking to repay a debt we could never repay, but rather just expressing our responsive love to him. Which is consonant with threatenings or chastisement. In other words, if my father loves me, and yet as a boy, I do remember him threatening me, I do remember him chastising me. I do remember him getting after me. I do remember him being displeased with me and even disappointed. And to a certain degree, that was a kind of motivation. But underneath that was the firm conviction that he was my dad and he accepts me. And so if we use that analogy, if you have these threatenings and disappointment and other motivations, if you disconnect them from the gospel, then they are of no value towards sanctification. They only really keep driving us back to Christ so that we'll know what we are and turn to Christ. So without actually embracing Christ, all of those other things are of no value, really. Is that fair or is that an overstatement? No, I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, if you're thinking of the analogy of a son who knows his father loves him, in a certain sense, when the father disciplines the son because he needs discipline, as you and I have needed discipline growing up and as our children have and our grandchildren have. That discipline as an expression of love, whatever it might be, grounding, spanking, whatever it might be, that hurts. But when we know that it's administered in love and it's administered out of a hurting father's heart, what hurts more than the pain of the discipline is that we've caused pain to our loving father. Yeah, we let him down. We've let him down. And it's that disappointment that we don't want to bring to our Heavenly Father as well. Marshall, in three different chapters, connects justification, sanctification, and union. Walk us through that a little bit. How should we think about our free acceptance with God, our growth in the Christian life, and our union or communion with Christ? Well, he first of all emphasizes that this truth that we are justified outside of ourselves on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness is what gives us the reason to be assured of the Father's favor and evokes love within us. But he emphasizes throughout that the power to pursue holiness, the power to act on this new motive 
wanting to obey God, not to try to evade his condemnation, but rather to express our love for him. This power the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. And he says that's one of the things that's absolutely crucial for us, that we have the assurance that because we're one with Christ and because his spirit has come into our lives and has drawn us to faith even, that Christ, who is our head, is empowering us to live a holy life. In chapter 4, he even says that it's through faith that we are united to Christ. And so if we're not united to Christ, then there's no power for sanctification. If it's a purely sort of legal matter, there is also a relational aspect to all of this. So as we struggle with sin and, and as we confess and repent and turn and seek grace, we do so with a living faith in communion with and union with the risen Christ in a personal relationship. That's absolutely true. You get the sense as you read Marshall that he's wanting his readers to share what he's come to discover in terms of the vital reality of Christ at work in their life, in their experience, in their heart, through the very real personal presence of the Holy Spirit. People are often tempted and have been historically, and we are still today, to think, well, you know, I'm sure God will accept me, but I really feel like I need to clean myself up first. And somebody comes to your house, you know, you don't ordinarily come down to the door in your bathrobe. If you meet a royalty, you know, you, you get cleaned up. And so there is that sort of natural tendency. But Marshall speaks to that directly, this impulse to sort of clean ourselves up first. He says especially that that instinct to think I need to get rid of these number of sins before I come to Christ is ignoring the most serious sin, which is refusing to believe in what God has provided for us in Christ. It's saying I need to do some of these things, maybe not consciously saying it, but I need to get myself cleaned up to supplement what Christ has done, and then I'll be, hmm, worthy? Would they say that? I'm not sure. It's fitting for God to show me grace. And Marshall says, no, no. The, the worst thing you can do is when God offers you Jesus in his righteousness and forgiveness in him and favor with him, is to say, no, not yet. I need to do some more. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, to say, not yet. I will, but but on my terms. And Jesus comes for sinners, and he touches sinners, and he justifies sinners. And so this impulse to prepare ourselves, and there have actually been movements in the history of the church, both in the medieval church and in the Protestant churches, called preparationism. And Rome actually teaches a form of preparationism and the increase of righteousness, they say. And we, as Protestants, understand Scripture to teach something very different that Christ died for the ungodly, and it's those who cannot help themselves, who cannot do their part, whom he begins to sanctify by his Spirit. Exactly, exactly. And if we adopt any assumption that we need to work away at preparing ourselves to receive grace, in a sense all those preparations are pushing us away from grace because they are overtly or subtly pushing us back to self-reliance rather than drawing us to cast ourselves altogether on Jesus and his sufficiency. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. He also talks about means, that God uses means to accomplish this. This doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't happen necessarily to isolated individual Christians, that ordinarily they need to be somewhere and they need to make use of these 
his means. Give us a sketch of what he has in mind when he says these things. Right. right. One of his later chapters is all about how God uses means to convey his grace, and it's the means that we would appropriately think of, the means of the Word of God, hearing it preached, reading it, taking it to heart, meditating on it, the sacraments, the things that God does for us and to us and with us when we meet in his church, in worship with him. He does talk about prayer, the legacy of the Westminster Standards, uh, speak of prayer as a means of grace. He talks about communion with other believers and the fellowship that we get in other ways. So he extends his discussion of means a bit beyond the more narrowly defined means of grace we sometimes find in the Reformed Confessions. But he says, this is the place we need to be in those places where Scripture shows God draws our hearts back again and again, to Christ and his sufficiency. So sometimes the temptation when we're struggling with sin and we're struggling with assurance is to withdraw and to isolate ourselves. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do, right? It's backwards because we're withdrawing from the very place where God has ordained to bring people to faith and where he's ordained to strengthen their faith and their union and their sanctification. Even through foolishness of Dennis Johnson or Scott Clark standing in a pulpit and announcing an improbable message. That's so true. And you're right that our instinct sometimes is to withdraw or to pull back or to feel ashamed or guilty to be in the communion of God's people, but that's exactly where we need to be. When we listen to those voices of condemnation, those are voices that are pulling us away from the one who can and has removed our condemnation and can assure our hearts again and remind us again of the beauty and the glory of Christ. Including, and you mentioned this, but baptism, watching. When our children were little, we used to hold them up so they could see in the service. Look, see that man, that's the minister, and he's putting water on that person. And that's a sign and a seal. It's a testimony of what Jesus does for those who believe, that just as that water hits them, so are we washed and made clean by Christ, not by water, by Christ. And we receive that through faith alone. And then we talk to them about communion. You know, you need to come to understand the faith, and you need to make a profession of faith to the elders that this is for you, that I personally believe this. And when we come to the table, that Christ, we say, feeds us with himself. And so, you know, to try to grow in the Christian life while starving yourself is a fool's errand, right? Exactly. Completely. What are the advantages, according to Marshall, of the gospel mystery of sanctification? In other words, as opposed to other approaches to sanctification, why is what Marshall's saying, why is that superior to try harder, prepare yourself, buck up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't feel guilty enough? Why is this a better way to make progress in the Christian life? As I recall, Marshall could say many things that make it better. I mean, one is that it actually does move us to obey out of love for God. It actually does move us to pursue holiness out of love for God rather than out of self-interest. It is the one and only way because it's through faith that we're united to Christ the Savior. It's the one and only way that we can actually avail ourselves of the power of the Spirit of Christ to resist temptation. But the other thing that stands out as I was thinking just about the last chapter is this theme. It's the only way that makes obedience joy. It permeates obedience with joy rather than mere struggle, rather than mere sense of failure and guilt and condemnation and duty that is a depressing thing. There is duty, absolutely. There is a place, as we've said, for a childlike fear of 
hurting our father or subjecting ourselves to his loving discipline. There's all that. But the theme that comes through at the end is just, here's the place where I can enjoy my Savior as I'm pursuing holiness, as I'm becoming conformed to his image. It's a delightful thing. I won't make all the progress I would love to make in sanctification in this life. I won't. But his Spirit is really at work. He who began a good work in me will Go on to carry it to perfection, to completion in the day of Jesus Christ, as Paul says to the Philippians. And there's that sense of joy that I can offer up my body as a living sacrifice in ways that bring honor to the Lord. One of the terms that comes up most frequently in this book is comfort, that we grow in sanctity through faith, through assurance, and in comfort, which is counterintuitive. I mean, there are ways in which, of course, we grow through discomfort. Nobody denies that. But what does he mean when he says that we grow in comfort? Well, you say it's counterintuitive because, again, apart from the gospel, our instinct is to say, if people are comforted, why will they see any need to pursue holiness? If they're comfortable, why change? And Marshall's point is, no, the comfort of the gospel, which assures us of our place in the Father's heart, in the Father's favor— is what really ignites our desire to be pleasing to him, to pursue holiness for his pleasure rather than for our safety. Our safety, in one sense, is profoundly secured by what Jesus has done for us. We rest in that. So now our desire to pursue holiness comes out of a desire that the Father would be pleased. So comfort stimulates us rather than sedating us. And we want to please the Father out of the comfort that he's provided to us in the sweetness of the gospel of his grace. Faith is not presumption. Faith is a confidence that what God has said is true, that what Christ has promised is true. Presumption is saying, well, I don't really know if I believe, but I'm sure it'll be all right. And we're talking about, and to, believers, not just people who make a profession of faith, not just to people who show up, but we're talking about believers. And so if one is disinterested in sanctification, if we say to someone, well, you know, I see that you're struggling with this, you know, let me help you. And they say, oh, well, you know, it's not a big deal. We might begin to wonder, are we dealing here with faith or presumption? And Marshall's talking about faith, right? Right. A living faith in Christ who provides a complete rescue from sin condemnation and from sin's ongoing control and domination. And he says, when we're trusting in this complete Savior, then the assurance and the comfort that he gives us in justification really whets our appetite for all that he has in store for us in terms of the ongoing transformation of our lives until that day when we will see him. And John says, then we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. At this, John says, 1 John 3, is what moves us. If we have this hope, this is what moves us and stimulates us to pursue holiness now. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.